Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When the police arrived at Silverwood's estate at 3.55 a.m. on February 14th, 2013, the ambulance was already there. The officers stumbled dreamily into the upscale apartment, already teeming with paramedics, security guards, and unidentifiable citizens, all acting as cautious vultures around an absolutely gruesome scene. A blonde woman lay on the floor with vicious wounds to her arms, hip, chest, and head. She was covered haphazardly with towels and laid next to an assortment of plastic bags. It was clear that she was already dead. Following the direction of local security, the detective then made his way to the garage, opening the door to find Oscar Pistorius, the famed sprinter, trembling underneath the fluorescent lights. He had no shirt on, and his athletic shorts ended just above his prosthetic limbs, limbs that were splattered with blood. His eyes were red around the edges and glistened with a faint residue of dried up tears. As he stood there, he kept repeating the same thing over and over again, as though in a state of shock and denial, or memorizing it for the questioning that was sure to come later. I thought she was an intruder. His voice was hoarse and raspy and distant. I thought she was an intruder. I thought she was an intruder. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. Sports are built on a foundation of fairness, with rules that aim to set up equal obstacles for two opposing sides. So why is it that so many people within this strict moral code stray outside the law? There are an untold number of athletes and others involved with the sports world that wind up in a life of debauchery. Sports Criminals aims to unpack this connection. We seek to uproot how the fame and cutthroat nature of professional and amateur sports can exacerbate and feed some of our darkest desires. 
You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Our connection to professional athletes, more so than any other celebrity, is built on a foundation of emotion. We invest in these stars, considering their rigid discipline and motivating drive to succeed as an example to leverage in our own lives. We look up to them with a misguided certainty of their goodness, an assumption that they deserve the things that came to them because of their mental fortitude. So when that athlete falls, when they cheat, or commit a crime, it hits harder. We feel intimately damaged, betrayed almost, as though we have been living in a false whirlwind of support. In the case of Oscar Pistorius, an entire country saw one of their most revered athletes at the height of his fame destroy all hope they had in him. And naturally, they reacted with incredible emotion and anger. It was, however, this storm of excitable outrage that plagued this case from the beginning. From the second police arrived on the scene in Pretoria, South Africa, on February 14, 2013, rumors and rampant speculation hung like a dark cloud. Opinion trumped evidence enough so that hindsight began to mix up the details of Oscar's personality. A great fear of the common person is that they will be tricked, duped by those in whom they have placed a good deal of emotional involvement. By looking in hindsight at what the media dubbed a rampant and explosive temper, by calling Oscar wealthy, aggressive, and generally careless, People were protecting themselves from emotional pain. But the reality was that they were further confusing an already incredibly complicated case. Everyone knew the bare facts. On February 14, 2013, at approximately 3 in the morning, famed athlete Oscar Pistorius shot his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, four times through a closed bathroom door at his luxury apartment in Pretoria, South Africa. What they didn't know was why. Did Oscar intentionally shoot his girlfriend as the result of an explosive argument? Or did he, as his defense claimed, shoot in the door as an act of protection against a potential burglar? Well, the biggest problem with this case is that both stories, those of the prosecution and the defense, are completely unbelievable. When Oscar and Riva met at the end of 2012, they were both at relative high points in their lives. Oscar was fresh off the 2012 London Olympic Games, where, as a double amputee, he had competed against the world's top able-bodied athletes. Though Riva Steenkamp was reveling in her own celebrity status, her road was similarly rocky. She was born on August 19, 1983, in Cape Town, and grew up in a rundown house with her parents, Barry and June, and two older half-siblings. 
Riva took her poverty in stride, and from a young age resolved to make enough money to take care of her family. She got a scholarship and graduated with a Bachelor of Laws in 2005, but eventually changed her career focus to modeling and moved to Johannesburg. Her success took some time, but by 2010, she had been chosen as the cover girl for FHM, and two years later, booked a spot on a South African reality TV show. Her star was on the rise. She started running in more affluent circles, reveling in the high life she had always desired. Most importantly, her dreams of taking care of her parents were coming to fruition. She began to send them money from her various modeling projects and TV bookings. Then, in November of 2012, she met one of South Africa's most famous young stars. The pair was electric, the perfect celebrity couple for South Africa. They were young, beautiful, intelligent, and embodied the edgy grit that seemed to define the country. Their relationship was national news. They were in periodicals, on TV stations, seen at the country's most prestigious events. Both of them carried the confidence of underdogs who overcame adversity. Riva for rising out of poverty, and Pistorius for overcoming his amputations to compete on the world stage. South Africa, as a country, self-identified with the story of the underdog, finding a way to triumph against great adversity. Nelson Mandela, in trying to explain the country's attraction to soccer and sports in general, wrote that athletes conjure up images of our nation's prowess, and they are symbols of South Africa's struggle and hope, of a willingness to tackle every obstacle in pursuit of a shared ideal. They personify the spirit of the country. From the outside, Oscar and Riva's relationship seemed to exhibit the energy of young lovers, swept up in the intoxication of a new relationship. From the inside, however, things were perhaps slightly more tumultuous than they appeared. Last week, we explored how Oscar's jovial and innocent outward persona may have been slightly manufactured. His obsession with guns, reckless boating accident, and general careless behavior suggested issues that were masked by his fame. It seems now, in hindsight, key phrase, that his relationship with Riva Steenkamp did little to curb these behaviors. Just before the pair met in September 2012, Pistorius allegedly shot his gun in anger out of the sunroof of a car. Pistorius' ex-girlfriend, Samantha Taylor, claimed that she, Oscar, and a friend named Darren Fresco were pulled over by a police officer. The officer saw Oscar's gun on the seat and forced him to empty the ammunition. This made Oscar furious, and he and Fresco started to rile each other up about shooting out a traffic light. It all culminated when Pistorius fired two shots blindly into the night. Fortunately, no one was injured, but the baffling disregard of such a foolish act is evident. After the boating accident, it was the second time in his adult life that Oscar had needlessly put others' lives in danger. Then, on January 11, 2013, Pistorius dined out with Fresco and several other friends. 
Pistorius asked to see Fresco's gun. Fresco warned him that there was a bullet in the chamber, and he handed the firearm to Oscar under the table to avoid the eyes of the some 200 patrons dining in the establishment. Right after Fresco passed off the weapon, a shot rang out, shocking the entire dining area into silence. Fresco sheepishly looked below the table and saw a glaring bullet hole in the floor right next to his foot. Pistorius was panicked. He pleaded with Fresco to take the blame. The publicity would be too much. He was too big of a star to be caught in such a scandal. Fresco was more confused than anything. He thought Pistorius knew his way around a gun. How would it accidentally fire? Pistorius said, oh, the gun must have malfunctioned, but that's not what was important. Please, could Fresco take the rap? Fresco tentatively agreed and sheepishly told the restaurant owner, who he personally knew, that it had just been some sort of unfortunate accident. The owner was flabbergasted. An accident? Seriously? There were children in the restaurant. When all was said and done, the owner allowed the party to finish the meal, which Oscar paid for. Little came of these incidents at the time, and Oscar faced no repercussions for his destructive behavior. However, they were soon to become a piece of the great hindsight machine, a piece of the puzzle that people should have seen, a dangerous hint at things to come. Riva Steenkamp was not oblivious to this side of Oscar. In fact, he told her about the incident, saying, Angel, please don't say a thing to anyone. Darren told everyone it was his fault. I can't afford for that to come out. The guys promised not to say a thing. There was also a hint of strife in the messages between Riva and Oscar. In one incident, he jealously accused her of flirting with another man. In another, she accused him of treating her unfairly in social situations. But perhaps the worst message for Oscar's trial, the one that would paint the most damning picture of him, came on January 27, 2013. Riva wrote to him on WhatsApp, I'm scared of you sometimes and how you snap at me. This text message would come to hold a lot of weight, especially considering the events that would come to pass only two weeks later. On February 13th, 2013, Riva Steenkamp drove by herself to Oscar Pistorius' home with the intention of staying the night. She carried with her a Valentine's Day card that read, I think today is a good day to tell you that I love you. When she arrived at Silverwood's estate, she had to pass by the incredibly tight security. The housing compound required fingerprinted entry and had a large wall with barbed wire surrounding its borders. She checked in at the front desk and made the familiar drive to Oscar's apartment, where, for the time being, all seemed ordinary. Oscar had bought her a bracelet, and the pair planned on going to pick it up the next day. They talked, shared dinner, and then eventually headed to bed. After that, nobody knows what happened. The reports that came out would not line up, and none of them were a clear-cut explanation. 
when neighbors at Silverwood's estate heard a woman's blood-curdling scream, followed by four gunshots. Then there was silence. Soon after, Oscar Pistorius's apartment was swarming with police officers, and a story for the ages was about to hit the international airwaves. In a moment, we'll visit the immediate aftermath of Reva Steenkamp's death. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. On the morning of Valentine's Day, 2013, police responded to a call from the home of star athlete Oscar Pistorius. They arrived at his house around 3.55 a.m. to find Reva Steenkamp dead at the bottom of the stairs. She had been shot multiple times with bullet wounds in her arm, chest, and head. A trail of blood from the top of the stairs suggested that the incident happened on the second story and she was carried down to the first floor. The security guard indicated that, for the time being, they were keeping Oscar Pistorius in his own garage. It did not take long for Oscar to admit to shooting his girlfriend, but he immediately insisted that he thought it was an intruder. The officers on the scene arrested the sprinter and took him to a holding facility to work out what to do next. That did not take particularly long. The very next day, on February 15, 2013, Oscar stood before Chief Magistrate of Pretoria Desmond Nair and listened as the prosecution declared that they were going to charge him with the premeditated murder of Reva Steenkamp. Pistorius broke down and wept, covering his face with his hands. He issued an apology to Riva's family and then left the courthouse to prepare for his bail hearing, set for the 19th of February. The public reaction to Oscar's arrest was immediate and sensational. Headlines flew left and right, spreading salacious rumors and giving reports seemingly out of thin air. There was suddenly an intense scramble to reconcile who Oscar Pistorius truly was. 
Only a few days before, he had been an international hero. The fastest man with no legs. The Blade Runner. South Africa's poster child of the sporting world. The man who overcame. The man who made the world aware. Now, overnight, he was a murderer. How could this be, unless there was a hidden monster inside him? A grand and deliberate deception? Evil did not just appear spontaneously. The roots must have long ago taken grip in the soil. Now, it was just a matter of digging them up. In the meantime, the rumor mill began to churn. Unsubstantiated headlines were rabid with emotional betrayal. Reva was pregnant. The couple had a terrible argument that night in which Oscar had fractured Reva's skull with a cricket bat. The police found steroids in his apartment and signs of heavy drinking. Oscar had physically abused Reva. He had a history of violence, domestic violence in particular. This was the first incident of the curse of hindsight that began to plague this case. But this was a more dangerous kind of hindsight, one that was not based on fact, but one that was looking for a cause, a hint, any sort of understanding of how this happened. And unfortunately, the police did not help the situation at all. In fact, they made the whole state of rumor-mongering much, much worse. In her first official statement to the press, police spokeswoman Denise Bucus confirmed that there had been an incident of domestic nature at Oscar Pistorius's home. The problem? This incident happened in 2009, when Oscar forcibly removed an inebriated girl from his property who was attempting to kick down one of his doors. While it might hint at Oscar's hidden aggression, Bucus did nothing to clarify that the domestic incident happened four years prior, long before Oscar and Riva even met. And that's not the only place where the police displayed incompetence. They also spread the rumor that they found steroids in his apartment. What they really found was an unfamiliar medication in Oscar's bedroom. The label read Testo, and so the investigators assumed it meant testosterone, which was in their immediate report. This was before the results came back from the lab, which showed it to be an herbal remedy. Well, this continuous lack of judgment by authorities at the beginning of the investigation really marred the chances that anyone was going to get a clear, objective picture of what happened that night. This was on display the most when, on February 19th, Pistorius's defense team interrogated lead detective Hilton Boeta. When cross-examined by Oscar's lawyer, Barry Rue, Boeta completely crumbled and gave the picture of a police department that had little idea what they were doing. Rue peppered Boeta with aggressive questions, forcing him to admit that he did not actually find steroids, that he had not accounted for all the available evidence in Oscar's apartment, and that his investigative methods did not leave room for objective forensic results. Boeta sheepishly admitted that he had not received the lab tests back, nor did he have the phone records. Finally, Rue forced Boeta to say on the record that Pistorius's account of the night did not have any inconsistencies with the evidence he found. 
Needless to say, at the end of the hearing, Oscar was granted bail and released to his Uncle Arnold's house to await his trial. But things didn't get much better for Detective Buita. Almost immediately after his embarrassing performance at the bail hearing, the media caught wind of the fact that, back in 2009, he had been charged with seven counts of attempted murder. The charges were initially dropped, but right around February of 2013, the case was suspiciously reopened. Detective Buita had little choice. He resigned from the case, capping off what was a disastrous beginning for the police and the prosecution's case against Oscar Pistorius. The reaction to Oscar's bail release was immediate. The African National Congress Women's League, or ANCWL, staged a protest outside of the courthouse. Because of South Africa's intense history of domestic violence, they saw Riva's case as an example. An example of how a woman was not even safe in her loved one's home. These concerns were incredibly justified based on statistics alone. In 2016, the World Health Organization found that femicide, the murder of a female by an intimate partner, was around five times more likely in South Africa than the global average. In 2012, 42% of young women in South Africa reported verbal or emotional abuse. One must take these numbers into account while also considering that many incidents of domestic violence go unreported. For the ANCWL, the high-profile Pistorius case was not just about Riva Steenkamp. It was about all women who were at risk in the place they felt safest. If this case was not treated with the gravity of a real murder case, then officials were inadvertently debasing the rampant domestic violence problem in South Africa. So they were outraged that Pistorius would be given such lenient treatment for such a heinous crime. But the chaos stemmed far deeper. The athletes still had many supporters. The media swarm was absolutely turbulent. They mobbed Oscar when he left the courthouse, converging around his vehicle as his security detail tried to safely escort him away. The misinformation continued to spread. The incompetence of the police was on full display. The world was watching. It seemed that it was not just Pistorius on trial, but the entire country of South Africa. They had to get this right. But it was already apparent that this case was built around bias on both sides. Both the prosecution and the defense were going to need to rely on the age-old tactic of storytelling. Both sides would use hindsight as a method of proof. Both sides would admit that Oscar shot four times into his closed bathroom door. Both sides called it a terrible tragedy but that's about where the similarities ended. So, what were these two sides of the story? According to Oscar Pistorius, the early morning hours of February 14th went something like this. Oscar had trouble sleeping. 
He always had trouble sleeping. He felt vulnerable in his bed without his prosthetics. Any old burglar could get in at any time, and they weren't afraid to use violence. Never mind that his compound was highly secure. Never mind the guns he had and the precautions he had taken. If someone was determined enough, they would get in. This was South Africa, after all. He flipped over again and stood up. It must have been the noise. His fans were letting off that excessive, monotonous exhale. He had them on the balcony with the doors open, allowing the distant sounds of the city to leak in. He looked at Riva's legs underneath the duvet and shoved the blanket away from himself, almost in frustration. He stood up to bring the two fans in, not turning on the light and shuffling lightly on his stumps to avoid waking up Riva. They had a big day planned for tomorrow. At least one of them could use some rest. He grabbed the fan and brought it inside, then shut the balcony door. The noise was drowned out right away, and Oscar breathed a sigh of relief. Perhaps he could get some sleep after all. He made his way back to his side of the bed, but there was an annoying blue LED light coming from the bedstand. The sharp light stung his eyes, so he grabbed the first thing he saw, a pair of jeans, Riva's jeans, and used them to cover his face as he made his way back to the bed. But something in the air still gripped him. Some feeling that tickled at the back of his senses. Something wasn't right. Then he heard it. There was someone in his house. Ice gripped Oscar's spine. He felt vulnerable and weak without his prosthetics. He could do little to fight back against an able-bodied intruder on two legs. He hastily felt in the dark for his gun. He did not have time to go searching for his legs. Whoever was in his house could be on them at any moment. There was one thing and one thing alone pounding through Pistorius's mind safety. He knew deep in his heart that it was either kill or be killed. With the 9mm pistol in hand, Oscar made his way to the door of the bedroom. He whispered to Riva to get down and call the police. Then he made his way to the bathroom as fast as he could, screaming at the intruder to get out of his house. He shouted back to Riva, again telling her to call the police. In response to his shouts, Oscar heard the bathroom door slam, confirming his greatest fear. Someone had broken into his house. Oscar followed the sound of the noise, turning the corner to his bathroom. He saw that the door was closed. Someone was in there. Someone who wished him and the woman he loved harm. Get the hell out of my house, he called into the dark. Get out right now. He heard a sudden noise as though the person was preparing to make a break, to react, to burst through the door, to shoot him before he had a chance to react. Oscar was panicked. If he waited a fraction of a second too long, he could die. So he lifted his nine millimeter pistol and fired. One, two, three, four shots into the door. He heard something drop to the floor. Then he called out, Riva, get downstairs and call the police. Someone's broken in. 
but she didn't respond. Perhaps she hadn't heard. Perhaps she was hiding. Riva, he called, heading back toward the room. He would grab his prosthetics and take full stock of this mess. Riva, he said again. It's okay now. I think I've got him. But when he entered the room and turned on the light, he saw the bedsheets in disarray. There was no one in the bed. And if Riva was not in the bed... Oscar tugged on his prosthetics and grabbed the nearest blunt object he could find, a cricket bat. He ran back down the hall, his heart racing, his ears ringing. No, 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 no. It could not be. It could not be. He bashed the bathroom door with the bat three times until it splintered and opened. There, crumpled on the floor in a bloody heap, was Riva. Her chest moved in and out, weaker every time. She was still alive, but barely. He needed to get her help. He could still save her. Oscar picked her up, trying not to move too fast to cause her any more harm. He carried her to the stairs and started down. But by the time she reached the bottom, she was dead. The story Oscar told was a heartbreaking tragedy, a miscommunication with the most dire consequences. He was willing to accept responsibility for acting rash, stupid, and reckless by firing the gun into the door. But he absolutely would not admit that he had intended to murder Riva Steenkamp that February morning. The state however, had quite a different account of events. They claimed that inside Oscar was a monster, a monster that he had somehow hid from the world for many years. In a moment, we'll hear the prosecution's version of events. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. At his bail hearing on February 19, 2013, Oscar Pistorius gave his account of what happened the morning of the 14th, a sequence of terrible events that ended in the death of his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp. The prosecution, headed by Harry Nell, had a much different story, and their story depended a lot more on history. Though the bail hearing had gone poorly for them due to the unfortunate performance of Detective Hilton Buita, they had more hopes for the trial. They would be prepared with a full case, complete forensic evidence, and enough witnesses to shed light on what they believed to be the truth about Oscar Pistorius. The trial began on March 3, 2014, 
almost a year and a month after Riva Steenkamp had died. Judge Tokozile Masipa was tasked with overseeing the case, which, beyond her incredible capabilities as a judge, made for fascinating theater. Masipa had grown up in the apartheid world. As with all black people in South Africa, she was forced to suffer the injustice and violence that came with racial segregation and forced poverty. Masipa chose to fight this inequality through the rule of law. She worked a full-time job while also raising her children and studying for the bar at night. After the end of the apartheid era, she became the second black woman to be appointed to the bench of the High Court of South Africa. Her appointment had many implications beyond the case itself, but the one that stood out the most was that a black woman would be presiding over the fate of a wealthy, privileged white boy. It was a chance for the country to show, on an international stage, just how far they had come in terms of social equality. Pistorius stood against charges of possession of ammunition, two counts of firing a gun in public, and of course, premeditated murder. It was the last count that prosecutor Harry Nell most wanted to focus on. But as he noted in his opening statements, almost all of the evidence would have to be circumstantial. The prosecution was going to have to tell their own story. And it went a little something like this. Pistorius had grown up a wrecking ball of aggressive behaviors. He bragged about driving at high speeds, famously crashed his boat, and would grab his gun at any sign of trouble with a shoot-first mentality. To top it all off, he had a rabid, frightening temper. Evidenced by his 2012 outburst at the London Paralympic Games against fellow competitor Alan Oliveira. By the fact that at the same games, his roommate and teammate Arnu Fari requested to switch rooms so he didn't have to listen to Oscar violently scream into the phone. By the incident when he shot his gun blindly out of the sunroof of his car by the times he stormed out of media interviews. By his alleged threats to Mark Batchelor, a South African soccer player, who Oscar called screaming that he would break his legs after accusing him of sleeping with his girlfriend. By the message from Riva Steenkamp that, in hindsight, appears incredibly damning. I'm scared of you sometimes and how you snap at me. The list goes on. Stories of the hidden side of Oscar. An excess of adrenaline that was so valued in the sports world, but destructive in real life. These traits went ignored because, in some regards, they were revered and encouraged. The picture in the prosecution's mind was clear. Oscar Pistorius was growing full of unchecked energy. It was only a matter of time before a needle popped his balloon. And that needle, said Prosecutor Harry Nell, poked Oscar's world on Valentine's Day 2013. When Riva came over, Oscar's jealousy and anger had hit a boiling point. The event was not necessarily major. 
Indeed, there were no stories of infidelities or relational strife between the couple, but Oscar was known to act rashly against minor offenses. Perhaps Riva had flirted with another man, forgotten something important, looked in the wrong direction. Whatever it was, Oscar accused her, and as was her character, Riva responded. She would have called him controlling and excessive, intolerable, frightening. Making his way to the bedside table, Oscar would have responded that he could show her what frightening really was. One witness, a neighbor at the Silverwoods estate, said that she heard the sounds of a couple arguing for almost an hour. She covered her head with a pillow to drown out the noise, but that didn't stop her from hearing the four bangs later. The four bangs that put an end to the shouting. Other witnesses heard a woman's blood-curdling scream, followed by gunshots. To the prosecution, it was clear what had happened. The argument between Oscar and Riva had escalated to the point of no return. Oscar had turned into the monster inside himself and started in on Riva with a vitriol she had never seen. She screamed and fled from him, locking herself in the bathroom. Blinded by rage and the slight against him, Oscar leveled his gun at the door. He warned her to get out now before something horrible happened. She ignored him. Oscar then kept his word. Thus were the two stories of hindsight. One painted Oscar as the victim of his own anxiety. One painted him as an angry, reckless, and bottled-up monster. The trial was a six-month slog full of contradicting statements from various witnesses. The building's head of security claimed that he called Oscar after reports of gunshots from the neighbors. When Oscar first picked up, he said, somewhat calmly, that everything was fine. Then, shortly thereafter, he called back in tears, saying that he needed help. Oscar's neighbor, however, a radiologist and the first witness to arrive on the scene, described Oscar as frantic and in genuine despair. He said right away that he shot her, thinking it was a burglar. He wept openly and tried his best to aid the radiologist in his attempt to save Riva. Oscar was so distressed that when he went upstairs for something, the radiologist feared that the sprinter might commit suicide. Both sides found serious inconsistencies in the other's story. The prosecution pointed out that it was extremely unlikely that Riva could skirt off to the bathroom while Oscar was turned away on the balcony pulling in fans. And if Oscar had used Riva's jeans to cover his face, as he said, how did the jeans wind up on top of the duvet cover? If he dropped the jeans there, he would have seen that Riva had kicked off the cover on the way to the bathroom and was no longer in bed. On top of that, he somehow put the fans at the foot of the bed, walked around the bed to grab his gun, and made his way to the bathroom without ever noticing whether his girlfriend was still there or not. Oscar weakly excused these things by claiming the police tampered with evidence, 
but there is little rationale behind this thinking. Why would police tamper with evidence to falsify Oscar's story if they didn't know what that story was yet? You cannot explain them moving around bedroom items at a crime scene through sheer incompetence. Oscar's lawyer, Barry Rue, said they wouldn't know because the prosecution failed to call Detective Hilton Buata to the witness stand. But after his performance at the bail hearing, prosecutors probably wanted to keep Buata as far away from Rue as possible. The defense, for their part, proved that the sound of a cricket bat crashing against a door sounded a lot like a gunshot. This confused the testimony of witnesses who said a woman screamed, then there were gunshots. They contended that the screams were Oscars, who, according to friends and family, had a scream much like a woman's when he faced extreme distress. The gunshots that came after were Oscar trying to break down the door with his bat. The defense also called many witnesses to testify on the state of Oscar and Riva's relationship. They cited that there was no evidence of abuse outside of normal interrelationship jealousy. They highlighted Pistorius's amputations as a source of anxiety, not inner anger. They had him walk around the courtroom on his stumps to show his vulnerability without his prosthetics. They brought a psychiatrist to the stand to testify that Pistorius had general anxiety disorder, though after prolonged evaluations, the results of his diagnosis were inconclusive. Friends and family claimed that his outbursts were from deep-rooted fears and insecurities. All the while, the protests raged outside. With the ANC Women's League on one side and a pro-Pistorius contingent on the other. Both wanted justice, but every day it was becoming clear that no one knew what justice was. Still, the world waited with a perplexed intoxication. The details of the trial are immense and incredibly complex, and we don't have the time to go through them all, but the point is this. It was clear neither side was giving a complete picture of the real story. From Oscar's point of view, it seems at the very least like he was crafting some extreme exaggerations to make himself seem as innocent as possible, a victim of tragic circumstance and nothing more. Judge Masipa went so far as to call Pistorius a very poor witness who backtracked often and constantly contradicted himself. In the case of the prosecution, from the outset, they were covering up shoddy police work, something they never quite recovered from. After all, it's incredibly difficult to prove guilt from circumstantial evidence and inconsistent witness testimonies from simply telling a story. Then, on the 11th of September, 2014, Judge Tokozile Masipa came to her decision. Oscar Pistorius was found not guilty of premeditated murder and murder. But he was found guilty of culpable homicide, also known as manslaughter, and sentenced to five years in prison. 
After 10 months, considering good behavior, he would be able to serve the rest of his sentence under house arrest. Well, the reaction was swift and immediate. Most of the world felt the sentencing was far too lenient. The prosecution agreed and began the process of appealing the decision. On November 3rd, 2015, a little over a year after Oscar's original sentencing, the South African Supreme Court of Appeal heard the prosecution's case. Their argument was brief and to the point. It did not matter who was on the other side of the bathroom door. Oscar shot at it with the intent to kill. The court agreed and overturned the decision, upgrading Oscar's guilty verdict from culpable homicide to murder. In July 2016, Judge Masipa increased Pastorius' sentence to just six years. Again, many thought this was too lenient. And once again, the South African Supreme Court of Appeal agreed. In November 2017, Oscar's sentence increased once more, this time to 15 years, the minimum suggested sentence for murder. Oscar tried to appeal this decision in 2018, but was rejected. He is currently serving out his sentence with no opportunity for parole in the near future. The story of Oscar Pistorius carries layers and layers of complexity, delving into many aspects of our culture and our fundamental humanity, our obsession with celebrity, the revelry of athletes, the racial fears ingrained in post-apartheid South Africa, domestic violence against women, the burden of proof. It was a tangled web with so many different threads with so many opinions and beliefs pulling in all sorts of directions that it was easy to forget that this story is mostly about two individuals. A man who was deeply flawed, whose flaws were masked by his athletic prowess as he was given the golden treatment by society, the status of not being held responsible for his actions, and a woman who, more than all else, just wanted to care for her parents, who rose out of her poverty and stood up for the things she believed in, who, no matter which side of the story you believe, was the victim of a great tragedy. It is her memory that should prevail through the murky swamp of bias, the memory of one who, in hindsight we can say, did not deserve to die. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Drew Cole and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 